All right. Today I'm joined with my biology professor, Dr. Klein. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Elizabeth Klein, and I'm an assistant professor in residence at UConn in the molecular and cell biology department. And I know that you've spent a lot of time in your graduate level, right, mm -hmm. doing... Um, spending time with Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. am I correct? Yes, so um, I did my PhD in neuroscience, um, and my dissertation was on how the immune system and the nervous system interact in Parkinson's disease. All right, so like I want to really understand what Parkinson's disease even is. So mm -hmm. like at its most basic level of what is going on, like what are the symptoms or like what are the consequences of Parkinson's disease. So we can start with the symptoms. Um, the f disease is diagnosed typically in people ages 60 or older, um, and it's a little more common in males than in females. And it shows up like doctors in the clinic end up seeing patients who have a tremor at rest, so you'll extend, um, you'll just have a, a resting tremor when you're not doing a deliberate motion with your hands. So that's one of the most characteristic symptoms of Parkinson's disease is a resting tremor. Then there's postural instability, so having trouble with your posture, okay. gait abnormalities, a shuffling gait, um, masks, facial expression. What is a gait? The way you walk. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so you have like, instead of walking with clear strides, mm -hmm. you're kind of shuffling. Yep. Um, and then people have trouble like expressing emotions on their face. Okay. <clears throat> so a mask masked facial expression, indicating that there's some kind of problem with the face muscles. Mm -hmm. People's handwriting can get very, very small. Micrographia, small handwriting, that's another common flag that will send hmm. people to the clinic. Suddenly their handwriting's very small, or your voice can get very quiet. Okay. So all of those are things that a person would go to the doctor um, because they're, they've developed this problem, and through a series of tests, the doctor would then diagnose them with Parkinson's disease. Some of those are nonspecific, so they could be other kinds of um, neurological problems, but those are the cardinal motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So are there different <coughs> degrees to Parkinson's disease? Yes, it's a progressive neurodegenerative disease. So it starts off maybe even not having motor symptoms, mm -hmm. and then those increase in severity. We have medications that can treat the symptoms, but none of them slow the progression of the disease. So they get progressively less good at handling the motor symptoms. Um, and there are also these non-motor symptoms too um, that I can tell you about, but they tend to show up even before the motor symptoms show up and people kind of just live with them, not really knowing, oh, this isn't so bad, I'm not gonna go to the doctor for it. And then later, um, as the disease has progressed, these motor symptoms show up. So the non-motor symptoms would be loss of sense of smell, not okay. something you might notice in like going yeah. to the doctor to talk about. Mood changes, anxiety and depression, that kind of thing. <clears throat> REM disturbances, so sleep disturbances. Mm -hmm. um, maybe your sleep patterns aren't what they used to be, or you're having um, disruption during the phase of sleep where you're dreaming during REM sleep. Mm -hmm. That would be um, something that comes before the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, gastrointestinal dysfunction. So people with Parkinson's disease sometimes have years of constipation, don't go to the doctor about it, aren't yeah. too inconvenienced by it, and then later 
um, develop motor symptoms that do go take them to the clinic and then they find out they have Parkinson's disease. Okay, so besides like more <clears throat> emotional and mood swings, is there anything that like affects cognitive ability or like thinking and consciousness or is it more um, emotion and like motor skills? There are um, changes in your ability to concentrate changes in your ability to shift from one topic to another, so focus problems that can emerge later at the very um, late stages of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. Also some memory problems. I've even heard of cases associated with hallucinations. Mm, Okay. Now, is this a particularly deadly Mm. disease, or is it just usually... um, just consequences of like having to deal with these different um, symptoms or is it will it eventually result in death um, people can live for decades with Parkinson's disease I wouldn't say that Parkinson's disease on its own is the primary cause of death mm-hmm. but because it can so limit your mobility you're now at risk for falls you're not able to get up and move around as much um, and that can lead to like respiratory illnesses not not being able to clear right if you can't get up and move around um, you're more likely to get something like pneumonia mm-hmm. yeah but it wouldn't be necessarily the Parkinson's disease pathology itself that um, okay that would cause that would um, cause death right um, difficulty swallowing maybe also that could come from Parkinson's disease and be um, cause a, a morbidity yeah Okay, so more on the yeah. biological side, what mm-hmm. is what's going on? So the, Why is this happening to there's us? There's a lot that we don't know. Okay. But the part that we do know is that the motor symptoms are coming because there's not enough dopamine in the brain. Okay. So dopamine's a neurotransmitter. Right. It's made by a couple different populations of neurons in the brain. One population is in the ventral tegmental area. Those neurons, they make dopamine, and that's associated with your reward circuitry in your brain. So if you've heard of dopamine before, you've probably heard about it in that context, like when you gamble, when Mm -hmm. you eat chocolate, when you have sex, like all of those things are times when dopamine is involved. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like another group of neurons and another circuit in your brain that also use dopamine, but they do it to regulate movement. So they're part, um, those neurons are in the substantia nigra, which is a part of the midbrain. Okay. And they project to another part of the brain um, called the striatum. And neurons there are in this other circuit called the basal ganglia. They're regulating and coordinating like motor plans. Okay, so, so like you, intentional movement. Yes, yeah, yeah, voluntary movement. Yeah. Stuff that your cortex is driving. Um, and so that's why we see things like tremor, like like inability to coordinate walking people with parkinson's have difficulty initiating or stopping movements and this is because of that dopamine circuit um, from the substantia nigra to the striatum so that's the cause of that part of the disease why do we have a down regulation in dopamine like where is the dopamine going why is it going away that's because of the degeneration of neurons in the substantia nigra so progressively you have a massive amount of neuron death and that's what's causing the loss of dopamine and that's what's causing the motor symptoms okay so let's backtrack to just how like a neuron works Mm -hmm. okay 
So it sends signals from one neuron to the next through means of dopamine or through like an electrical signal, or are those the same thing? Um, they can be. So not all neurons use dopamine. They are, they can use other neurotransmitters. Okay. But in Parkinson's disease, we're talking about neurons that make the neurotransmitter dopamine. Okay. So dopamine's going to do kind of what you just said, where it goes from one neuron and then it's received mm-hmm. by another neuron. So that neuron has to have receptors for dopamine. Mm-hmm. And in response to dopamine, some kind of response happens in that neuron and then that neuron like will signal to the next neuron in a circuit. Okay. So, yeah, changes in like uh, like the electrical potential between one neuron um, will happen in response to receiving a neurotransmitter, and that's what determines whether or not it then signals to the next neurotransmitter. So neuron function is modulated by electrical potentials that are influenced by neurotransmitters. Okay, so if there's a, a drop in dopamine mm-hmm. levels, wouldn't that result in less movement? Right, so it's it's more like it results in less thalamocortical drive. So it's like... Okay, it, what is thalamocortical drive? Thalamocortical drive. It's okay. like this... Um, hmm, how do I explain it? It would be like... For a motor program to be executed, you have to have this whole circuit being coordinated properly and then um, signaling to the next set of neurons in the relay, ultimately going to like neurons in your primary motor cortex and then neurons in your spinal cord, and then finally neurons that synapse onto muscles. Okay. So we're, if any part of that chain is dysregulated, you won't be able to execute movement properly. Right. So you could see the same symptoms of Parkinson's disease, like difficulty moving. Right, but isn't mm -hmm. isn't another symptom like uncontrollable shaking? Right. Which is, that's like excess movement. Right. But that doesn't make sense. It's it's just because all of those things, initiating and terminating movement, is Mm -hmm. regulated by the basal ganglia, which is different. Regulating, okay, and okay. Yeah. Okay, and okay, so if there, is there, is it just a loss in dopamine or is it also the receptors are kind of funky? That's a super cool question. So it turns out that actually your body can compensate for massive losses in dopamine um, by one, having the surviving neurons. So like as you're losing neurons and as you're losing dopamine, they don't all die at once. Mm -hmm. So the remaining neurons will try to compensate for their dead brethren and like make more dopamine. And then on the postsynaptic side, those neurons that are receiving dopamine, they can modulate their dopamine receptor expression. Um, I wouldn't say that all of that is like fully characterized and perfectly understood, but that's the idea. Otherwise, you would start seeing symptoms of Parkinson's disease much younger. But like, in fact, these dopamine neurons are dying slowly and your body's compensating for it for a very long time. And then eventually you get to a point where you have lost so many dopamine neurons, the system can no longer compensate. And now you start seeing motor symptoms. Okay, so it's not just the dopamine levels. It's also the whole like neuron that the is also dying. dying. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So with that logic, wouldn't everyone get Parkinson's eventually? Hmm. Um, that's interesting. I wonder if it would just be that if the lifespan were extended long enough, we would see more people getting Parkinson's disease. I think that's certainly the case. Like as we have more people aging, we see an increased incidence of Parkinson's disease. Do you disease. know how many like 
you have like a percentage or one percent of people over the age of 60 about like a million people in the united states have parkinson's disease okay and okay but i feel like that number should be like higher if it's a degenerative thing yeah i think what's happening is like not everyone has the combination of genetic risk factors and environmental exposures that initially set off dopamine neurons dying. Okay, what are some of those factors? Great question. So I'll start with the environmental ones because I think they're a little bit easier to explain. (laughs) Exposure to certain pesticides, um, exposure to certain pollutants, flame retardants. Um, Let's see, what else? cigarettes but that one's kind of complicated because um, it may decrease your risk of Parkinson's disease in some people same for caffeine Um, maybe somewhat neuroprotective let's see if you have taken non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs stuff like ibuprofen or Advil that is a decreased risk of Parkinson's disease why Um, so the thought there is that it's anti-inflammatory and that inflammation increases risk of Parkinson's disease okay yeah so all, um, I'm trying to think if I missed any big environmental exposures. Manganese. Yeah, those are some of the things that you could be exposed to in the environment that later on you might develop Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. Um, pesticides are one that I spent a lot of time thinking about during my dissert- dissertation. Um, and that happens to be because there are particular pesticides that can synergize with certain people's genetic background and increase risk in that particular population. Okay, whenever you say synergize, what do you mean by that? I mean, like, if you have the combination of this genetic um, risk factor yeah. and this environmental exposure, now you see an increased risk, not when you have one, well, just one of those things. Okay, got it. Yeah. So for genetic risk factors, hmm, the, one of the biggest ones is mutation, duplication, triplication of the gene that codes for this protein called alpha-synuclein. And alpha-synuclein is a really interesting protein because it's present in a lot of neurons, many kinds of neurons, but really, really abundant in dopamine neurons. And it aggregates in dopamine neurons in Parkinson's disease. So that means it clumps up. It is not localized where it's supposed to be in the neuron and instead is in these, like, Mm. hunks. And you can imagine that, like, since a protein's shape and its position in the cell are so critical to its function that aggregates, that's not good. That means the protein is not doing what it normally does. Identifying what alpha-synuclein normally does has been kind of a challenge for science. Um, But now we're starting to think that alpha-synuclein is important for the docking and proper release of vesicles. Hopefully you remember what vesicles mean we talked about in class. Yeah, vesicles are like these little membrane-bound structures. They contain neurotransmitter in neurons. So to have proper neurotransmission, you need to have proper docking and proper release of vesicles. Mm -hmm. And this protein, alpha-synuclein, is involved in that process. Okay. So in Parkinson's disease, some people who have mutations, duplications, or triplications in the gene that codes for alpha-synuclein have... There's just like excess right, of this protein. Have really high expression and then have misphosphorylation of the protein, have mislocalization of the protein. It's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, and that is associated with neuron death. Okay. So on that, mm-hmm. how early can we like detect this excess amount of protein? Post-mortem. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, that we are getting better at that. So could you take like a blood test and be like, oh wow, you have a lot of this protein. Yeah, like, that that's is not a good. really cool question. If so, it turns out actually that 
I think red blood cells do express alpha-synuclein, but it's not like doing the same things in those cells that it's doing in neurons. No, now I'm nervous about being recorded because what if I'm wrong about alpha-synuclein being present in red blood cells? Anyway, no, you can't do, right now, you can't do a blood test and measure someone's alpha-synuclein levels. It might be the case that you could do something like Could you a, do like an fMRI? Ooh, interesting. So fMRI would measure like blood flow in the brain. Okay. It would measure like, because that's a functional MRI. So it's looking at what part of the brain is using more glucose and thus getting more blood flow because that area of the brain is active. Okay, yeah. Not going to tell us necessarily about specific increases in an amount of a particular okay. protein. All right. Could, okay, what about like, there's got to be, like, can you, like, tag it with, like, a radioactive isotope? Something like that. Maybe um, maybe we could do, like, a PET scan. Ooh. Yeah, that kind of thing could identify increased alpha-synuclein. It turns out there's also a bunch of alpha-synuclein in your gut, though. Okay. Right? Weird. Why is, it, <laughs> why is there a bunch of alpha-synuclein in your, like, is, gastrointestinal now, system? Uh, this, this particular protein, yeah. is this, like, the one of the main factors of Parkinson's? Or it is, is it kind of a lesser, like... Case. No, it is one of the main factors because what's interesting about alpha-synuclein is that if you have one of those like mutations, duplications, triplications in the gene, you're going to get Parkinson's disease. It'll probably be early onset and very aggressive. Hmm. Even if your alpha-synuclein is totally normal, you don't have any genetic abnormalities in that gene, you're still post-mortem probably going to see in those people's brains aggregated alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein still misbehaves in what's called idiopathic Parkinson's disease where there's no clear genetic cause of PD. That's really interesting. And alpha-synuclein is not the only protein like that. There are others like leucine-rich repeat kinase 2 or LARC2 where some people have a mutation in LARC2 they have increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. But you can see misbehaving LARC2 even in people without mm -hmm. um, a genetic abnormality in LARC2. Okay. Yeah. So is there maybe, can we make kind of like a buffer system? Hmm. You mean like to, to protect people? Who to like make sure the levels of, what is it, alpha? Synuclein. Yeah. Alpha synuclein stays in a range that is healthy for us? So manipulating alpha-synuclein directly could be kind of tricky because it is not just in dopamine neurons, it's in other neurons as well. And those neurons are handling alpha-synuclein fine, okay. um, at least early on in the disease. So you wouldn't want to go in there and just be like, let's just d knock down alpha-synuclein. It actually turns out that if you fully remove alpha-synuclein, that can cause neurological problems as well. So having too much or too little both seem to be bad for dopamine neuron survival and for norm normal like neural functioning. Mm -hmm. um, vaccinating against alpha-synuclein has been one approach that people have taken. So with a vaccine, you can like develop an immune response against a very particular form of a protein. Okay. So maybe we just need to clear out the aggregates but leave the monomeric form of alpha-synuclein alone, leave like the, yeah. the normal version of it alone. Um, are they different, like the aggregates and the normal version, are they like structurally or any, or what's the difference between those two? So um, like the monomeric form would be one protein, okay. an aggregate would be many proteins have stuck together and are now clumped up. Right, but how do we differentiate the two? Um, you mean From like... From a vaccine, like using a vaccine. Um, so, you, so you would be... 
targeting an epitope that is only present, par- targeting a particular structure or shape okay. that just emerges in Got the it. aggregated form, which okay. is in the monomeric form. Yeah, not an easy thing, um, but that's an approach people have taken, taking advantage of the immune system's ability to distinguish between like subtle differences in protein shape. Yeah. So not done in humans, but something okay. that has been done <laughs> in animal models of the disease. So what are the main theories or like ways that we're trying to combat this disease? Hmm. Um, there's certainly like a dopamine neuron focused approach where you say, okay, the dopamine neurons are dying. So I'm going to look at pathways in dopamine neurons and try to interrupt anything that leads to death. Okay. Anything related to regulated cell death, apoptosis, so that that's a whole signaling cascade that can happen in dopamine neurons. People get interested in all the proteins involved in apoptotic signaling cascades and addressing those. Oxidative stress is um, one way that dopamine neurons may die. So some people study oxidative stress in dopamine neurons. Some people study alpha-synuclein leucine-rich repeat kinase 2, all in neurons. So they're looking at what those proteins are doing, what those signaling pathways are doing in dopamine neurons. I did my dissertation in a lab that, yeah, we looked at dopamine neurons sometimes, but we were really interested in other biological factors that act on dopamine neurons and may create an environment inhospitable. So it's more like preventative measures. It would be more like, yeah, outside the cell reasons why the cell might die okay it could be definitely preventative but it could also be like can we intervene and manipulate the whole Mm. physiological system and save the dopamine neurons we were particularly interested in the immune system it turns out that along with the death of dopaminergic neurons when in parkinson's disease there is ongoing brain inflammation and body inflammation and this is not something that people like knew about or appreciated for a long time we've known about parkinson's disease since 1817 (laughs) like we've known about it for a long time and just in the last i was like 20 years or whatever we've thought also appreciated the immune component of the disease so the lab that i worked in was like what are immune cells doing are they doing things that are making dopamine neurons die can we make them stop doing those (laughs) things Um, and do we see any better outcomes Okay, so neurons are dying in the... Substantia nigra. And what part of the brain is that in? Midbrain. Which part of the midbrain? Oh, uh, the middle part. So like near the like reticular... Mm, no, form- north of the reticular formation. Uh, the pons? Definitely north of the pons. Um, is, it, oh, is it in the midbrain? Yes. Oh, so like yeah. with the tectum and tegmentum. Mm-hmm. Tegmentum, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay that makes sense. Uh, because that okay so Ooh, does, it, on my neuroanatomy. <laughs> does it affect um so it affects movement mm-hmm. um that makes sense but does it also affect like um response to stimuli hmm uh, my thought about that is that like it kind of has plays a role in that because Visual stimuli can be used to kind of correct for the motor symptoms that Parkinson's disease mm. patients have. So if you put a grid on the ground, a Parkinson's patient who was previously having a shuffling gait can step confidently over the lines of the grid. Like, because for some reason, the visual like integration of that grid mm. information like allows their body to co- compensate, take an alternative route towards executing movement 
also music. Um, music and dancing motions can allow people with Parkinson's disease to move in a much more smooth way um, and, and to improve their balance than like walking without that kind of alternative sensory cue. Okay, so neurons are dying in this area, in the midbrain. What about the neurons in the other parts of the brain? Very cool question. Um, at the beginning of Parkinson's disease, and even this is true in models as well, even very nearby dopaminergic neurons are fine. It's just the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra that are dying. It's like a very specific vulnerable population. Um, there are also neurons that make a similar but different neurotransmitter called norepinephrine in what's called the locus ceruleus. They degenerate as well in Parkinson's disease. They degenerate possibly earlier and to a greater extent than the dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, but the consequences of that, of losing norepinephrine neurons, I'd say is much less well understood. We don't really know, like, what, why is it bad that those neurons die? Or what's the consequence of it? Um, that's not as well understood. So, like, those two populations in the substantia nigra and in the locus ceruleus are both So they're dying at a faster rate than the other neurons. Yeah, it seems so to what, be. So what what is the difference between those neurons and the other neurons? Yeah, that's the question that science is working on addressing. Um, both have alpha-synuclein, that's a thing. Um, both are releasing, yeah, these neurotransmitters that do regulatory functions. They're not straight excitatory or inhibitory. Um, that's weird. Yeah, it is weird, for sure. Huh. So, I, I, it's weird how, like, I don't know, the neurons are the same, but I don't know, something, something has to be different. Something has to be different. Something has to be different. So, one, or, or, alternative hypothesis, their environment is different. So, I was really interested in these glial cells. Have you heard of glia? I've heard of it, but remind me what they are. Yeah, so glia are these other cells in the central nervous system besides neurons. Okay. So everybody thinks neurons are so cool, and they're like, oh, they're glamorous. They're doing all these electrical signaling things. They make neurotransmitters. Um, but meanwhile, there's this whole other, like, ecosystem of cells it, that actually outnumber the neurons in the central nervous system that people, like, don't talk about. Or, you know, a lot of people don't right, talk about. Right, cool right. people talk about them. <laughs> so we have astrocytes, we have microglia, we have the cells that form myelin around axons. Um, so that would be oligodendrocytes and Schwann cells. I was really interested in microglia. They are brain-resident immune cells. So you have immune cells in your body that protect mm -hmm. you when you get a paper cut, whatever, that fight off the cold. Right. Those are in your systemic circulation. Then in the brain, there are these resident macrophage-like cells. They are growing up next to the neurons. They're like in the same neighborhood, right next door, just a different cell type. And they do very similar things that peripheral immune cells do, but they respond to signals like slightly differently. And I was interested in determining whether in Parkinson's disease, the things that the peripheral immune system are doing and the things that the microglia are doing, are they at all contributing to dopaminergic neuron death? And so it, when you're asking like, what's the difference between the norepinephrine neurons and the locus ceruleus mm -hmm. and the dopamine neurons and the substantia nigra, could be their exposure to peripheral immune cells, could be what's coming out of their neighbors, the microglia, could be, um, yeah, something else entirely. But those are 
some possibilities. <laughs> All right. So earlier you talked about um, we do have drugs that do mitigate the symptoms. So what do those drugs do to mitigate the symptoms? They what replace it... dopamine. Okay. It's a very like straightforward, simple approach. Okay, but I thought it wasn't just the dopamine we're missing, but we're also missing the whole neuron. Yeah, it turns out that it'll still work, that there are enough... Are we just, like, overloading yeah. our... Okay. Yeah, you're basically relying on this tiny population. Now, does that increase the rate of death of those current neurons by, like, <sighs> overworking them? I don't think so, but that's an interesting question. I'm not sure about the answer to that. Um, it seems to be that you can continue for a while to get... A survival to get a response from the surviving neurons um, as long as you keep giving this exogenous precursor to dopamine called L-dopa. So you give L-dopa, the surviving neurons take it up and use it, they make dopamine from it, and you'll get temporary relief from your symptoms. You get dopa like sensitization though, and so you stop responding right. um, to your treatment. To the so L-dopa. do you need to increase yeah, the or, dopamine level? Right. Like, Progressively, Right, that would be the, the idea that you use the lowest dose possible for as long as you can. When you stop responding to that, you go up. Uh, stop responding to, go that, to that, you go up. There are dopa-induced dyskinesias that can happen, though. So a dyskinesia would be like a dysregulated movement. Think like kinetic energy, kinesia. So those are like intolerable side effects, and they can be permanent. Like it's really um, like a, a movement that is not the desired voluntary movement mm-hmm. and your body just kind of gets stuck in this um, in this dyskinesia. So we have to avoid that, can't up the, the L-DOPA treatment to the point where you get a dyskinesia. Um, but you have to in- increase it enough that you get management mm-hmm. of the tremor, the, the postural instability, the gait abnormalities. Okay, there's like one other alternative called deep brain stimulation. Uh It's pretty cool. You just embed an electrode in the brain and kind of make up for the lack of dopamine. Super invasive, also wildly effective in some people. Are they, okay, so what what are they doing? Like, are they just putting a little electrode in our midbrain? Mm -hmm. Or in the striatum, or in the, yeah, in the globus pallidus sometimes, but... I don't know a lot about how deep brain stimulation works. I just know that for a subset of patients, it is like night and day. Like you go from not being able to um, move, turn on the electrode, and suddenly like your coordinated movement comes back. Um, The placement of the electrode is going to vary for um, different people. I don't know how they figure out like who's going to need an electrode in this place versus Mm -hmm. in this place. Um, or what's the best route, or how the electrodes are controlled? <laughs> the electrodes are controlled. I don't know about that, but it is another like treatment that people do for Parkinson's disease. I also don't know the longevity of that intervention. All right. So, one way is increasing dopamine levels. Right. Now, how do how does the dopamine get that? So, are dopamine levels across the board being raised, or is it just in that one? specific area across the board so one side effect can be a gambling addiction or suddenly you're taking risks that you wouldn't take normally and it's because Mm. the dopamine is not only acting in the circuitry for movement it's also acting in the circuitry for reward Mm. yeah okay so like okay on okay yeah so how does that do we get do we become like overall like hyperactive 
Mm, no, it's still it's still in certain brain regions, the ones that have dopamine receptors. It's not like taking L-dopa means that all of your neurons are suddenly like more active. Okay. But in the circuits that are responsive to dopa, you've increased the stimuli. Mm-hmm. You've increased the, the, the substrate for the receptor. Okay, so this drug um, that's helping mitigate some of the symptoms, mm-hmm. is, is this like a commonly like a, addictive drug? Ooh, I wouldn't... No, I wouldn't say that, um, just because of the dyskinesia risk thing, and because not everyone has this response of, mm. um, yeah, of suddenly becoming more risk uh, tolerant. Yeah. Or yeah. No, so no, I wouldn't say it's a <laughs> drug of abuse. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, what is that? It's two eleven. Okay. How much do we got? Five minutes? Yeah. Five minutes? Okay, yeah. so um, five minutes. Um, so are we, like, getting closer to a solution? Or are we kind of at this dead end? Or, like, how's the progress looking? <laughs> I definitely wouldn't say we're at a dead end. I would say my opinion is that we're at a point where we're understanding that we have lumped all people who present with the same symptoms or similar symptoms together into the category of Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And it is, in my opinion, much more likely that we have some people with dying dopamine neurons because of genetic factors. We have some people with dying dopamine neurons because of what they've been exposed to. And we have some people with dying dopamine neurons because of the combination, the blend of their genetic risk factors and their environmental exposures. That's going to vary the amount of inflammation those people have. That's going to vary like what the immune system is doing in all those different people. It's varying the cause of the disease. And so likely your treatment is going to need to be different for those different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of trying to find like a single cure for Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease, we're going to find interventions that are effective for subpopulations. Um, that's not a super satisfying answer. I think I, I wish I could be like, yeah. In a few days, we'll have the right inhibitor that will intervene in the common pathway of Parkinson's disease. But it just seems to be that there's not one single cause of the disease. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So is there a way to um, synthesize neurons? Neurogenesis. It happens in some brain areas. It does not happen a lot in the adult brain. Um, so I'm thinking like maybe it happens a little bit in the hippocampus, but not a lot in other brain regions. It's not happening in the adult substantia nigra. Is there a way we can make yeah. like synth- we can like synthesize neurons like from like just a mechanical and like, human way? Like can well, we just make neurons like somehow? The thought <laughs> was that you could convert pluripotent stem cells into neurons and then put those neurons into the substantia nigra and have them repopulate the space that was previously occupied by healthy functioning dopamine neurons. This has been tried. It was even tried in humans. I would not say it was a particularly successful intervention or we would do it all the time. It was risky. It required stem cells, as you may know. Like mm, Stem cell yeah. research can be somewhat controversial. Right, right, right. Um, it also turned out that the stem cells were corrupted by like the surrounding dopamine neurons that were there and that were dying. Um, so the alpha-synuclein aggregates could show up in, gra- in stem cell graphs that were delivered to the brains of Parkinson's disease patients or in Parkinson's disease models, suggesting that like 
this aggregation of alpha-synuclein and the factors that are making the neurons die are intercellular. Like, so they can spread to the new neurons that you delivered, mm. hoping that they would take over and, mm -hmm. and populate and survive. So great idea, um, not optimized yet, but possibly a route for, for future research. Yeah, well, thank you for um, talking to me about this. We'll have to do this again because I, I know there's like so many aspects to this thing and to other things. Um, but why, I don't know, just a personal question. Why, what got you pumped up about Parkinson's, hmm. Parkinson's disease? So I got pumped up about neuroscience in general when my grandfather had Alzheimer's disease, a okay. different neurodegenerative disease, and I found out there were no treatments for mm -hmm. it. This was when I was in fourth grade. And I was like, well, what do you mean there's no treatment for it? There mm -hmm. are treatments for everything else. Every strep throat case I've yeah, ever had yeah. as a little baby, I was like, we just handled it. Why can't we handle right. this? Okay, that like incubated in my brain for a few years. I took AP Bio. I learned about neurons. I listened to the radio one day and heard someone say the word neuroscience and Googled it and found out that it fits like you could do a whole career just studying brain stuff. And I was like, that sounds amazing. So um, I think it started off with being really frustrated that there were problems with organs we all have that we couldn't solve. I was like, I'm really uncomfortable with having a part of myself that science doesn't know about mm -hmm. that made me nervous yeah <laughs> and then I took science classes like AP biology like my intro bio right. class and stuff in college and I was like I love it tell me more I got into a research lab and saw brain slices for the first time and thought they were beautiful like, <laughs> lost my mind I was like these are the prettiest things I've ever seen um started using an electron microscope so now I'm not only just seeing slices of brain but like straight up directly neurons yeah. and I was like freaking out <laughs> so then I go to graduate school I met a mentor who was amazing like a very um I don't know like warm nurturing person who was also a very badass scientist who just knew so much was just a baller in the field and also liked to interact with her trainees so Malou Tanzi my mentor just kind of like welcomed me into research for like to keep going I had all these great lady trainees around me it was basically an all-lady lab <laughs> and that was really fun so I finished my PhD and then I came here so do you still do research on the subject or not really anymore? not really so I have data that I'm like analyzing and going to try to publish from my dissertation I already published some but still working on those experiments mm -hmm. I also happen to really love teaching so yeah. I am very happy to be a person who's primarily just responsible for teaching now rather than also trying to work in the lab. But I loved my time in the lab and I still am very passionate about neuroscience and about answering unsolved questions in neuroscience. I'm surprised you didn't go the more like psychology route or like, um, because I feel like psychology is more of that like neurosciency kind of thing. Hmm. I mean, I consider psych to be more about behavior, right? right. About why do you... But there's also, like, the physiology. There 100% is. Um, so in my neuroscience undergraduate degree, the classes that you would take are functional neuroanatomy, synaptic transmission, neurophysiology, um, and then maybe, like, some electives about developmental neuroscience, about, like, uh, the neuroanatomy of different neurological diseases. I've never taken a psych class, so everything I know about the brain is from the perspective mm. of like on the molecular, okay. yeah. cellular, and maybe systems level, how do brains work? 
I'm definitely like interested in human behavior, I guess, but more as like a casual curiosity. Well, I think they're both very connected. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. I think I just found it really satisfying to get in there and be like, what are the molecules <laughs> doing? Like I need, I only feel comfortable when I understand something like to its deepest level. Mm-hmm. I'm not a structural biophysicist or anything, but I think this is like as far as I could get yeah. myself to go on that spectrum of understanding. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for My your pleasure. time. Um, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Cool.